This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I started to be honest with myself, I guess, more than I had been before, and accept that you're just a football player. <laughs> like, you're not this deity that uh, they built you up to be in high school and college. This is Death, Sex, and Money. That's death walking on the beach. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. So that's where my priorities are right now, sex. And need to talk about more. Keep the small bills on the outside and call me if anyone gets drunk. I'm Anna Sale. Dominique Foxworth used to play in the NFL. Defense for the Baltimore Ravens, the Atlanta Falcons, and the Denver Broncos. He was also president of the NFL Players Union for two years. When we spoke, he was ending the summer in Baltimore, the city where he grew up, before starting his second year at Harvard Business School. I was in New York, but we've been in the same place before. I was at the 2004 Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was rooting for West Virginia. Sorry about that. Yeah. Do you remember the score? Uh, I know we had 40-something, and I believe you guys were in the single digits or maybe like the teens. <laughs> That's right. No, 41 to 7. Yeah, it was a good game. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of that game, the guy sitting right behind me in the stadium puked on his feet. It was not a great day to be a football fan. But I am a fan. I get why football matters, at least where I grew up. West Virginia is a poor state. We didn't have any major professional sports. So when you're standing in a stadium watching that college football team and your state win, and you know it's being beamed across the country, it's a surge of collective pride that I haven't felt anywhere else. But football is hard for me to watch now. At a time when the NFL admits in court that one in three retired players may face long-term neurological problems, or when the league fails to harshly punish a player after decking a woman in the face until a video on a gossip site forces its hand. And I'm just a spectator. Imagine what it's like for other football players, men who've dedicated their entire childhoods and early adult lives to this sport. Like, I knew that this wasn't right Dominique retired from the NFL in 2012. The sport made him a millionaire. But as president of the Players Union, he also negotiated with the team owners and saw close up their cost-benefit calculations about the safety of his and his teammates' brains. I don't want to paint all the owners with a broad brush because I've developed some relationships with some who I I don't think they're like uh, assholes, to put it that way, but I think a lot of them are, honestly. It made it hard to love the game he started playing when he was six. I remember very clearly in the apartment that we were living in, sitting down with my dad, and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I told him, professional football player. And uh, he proceeded to say, okay, well, you should set little goals between now and when you get there and work, do something to work towards it every day, no matter how big or how small. 
And uh, that night I actually did sit-ups because I was like, all right, well, I'm going to get strong enough right now to get in the NFL. So it's good old six-year-old logic. I did sit-ups uh, until I probably got to 300 or so. Oh. And I remember uh, <laughs> probably for the first time since I was a baby uh, <laughs> not being able to control my bowels because I was so dehydrated. I threw up and had <laughs> some other <laughs> had some other stomach issues. So I remember my dad saying, well, you can't, you can't, you can't like do it all in one day. Is it true that your parents have never missed a football game of yours? That is absolutely true. I had one or both at every single game uh, my entire life. So it was... This is peewee league, junior high, high school, college, NFL, all over the country. One of your parents is in the stands. Yep. Um, I remember when I was a kid not knowing that I had good parents (laughs) until... Uh, after a practice uh, in high school, my parents were late picking me up from practice one time. I was like really upset. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Why am I still here 30 minutes after practice is over? And all these other kids like, yeah, I wait here every day for an hour. Like, who knows when my mom's going to show up? That was the first time that they were like not there for me <laughs> exactly when I needed them. Uh, the first time that I looked around at other people who were just like me and and saw that they didn't have that. When you get you know older in high school and you're thinking about college and college ball in the NFL and you start to realize, like, oh, not everybody who says they want to be an NFL player when their six-year-old boy gets to be an NFL player, did you question it or did you, did you always kind of know? I don't think that I ever had, like, real serious doubt. But so I graduated from high school uh, half a year early and I started at the University of Maryland full-time class and full-on practice with the football team, and I was awful. So oh. you you go from being a dominant kind of player in little Baltimore to playing with men, essentially 21, 20-year-old guys who had been in a full, a real um, training program and and played against other men. And and I, I the high school that I went to had a football team for two seasons before I, I got there. So we didn't really have really? developed... Yeah, we didn't have much of a developed program. So I, I got there. I was getting dominated by them on the field. I was getting dominated in the classroom because, I mean, you know, your senior year in high school, you're just kind of chilling. So then I, I go there and they are not chilling. So I I had I ended up pulling it all together and, and getting like a reasonable GPA. But that first, this first uh, month or so on the field and in the classroom, was miserable, and that was the first time when I was thinking, was like, well, I don't know if this football thing is for me. What was life like in the dorms for you? <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely a different experience than the average freshman because you're kind of a celebrity on campus. What was it like to be a celebrity on campus with women? There were some easy opportunities or layups as as I called them back then and oh, those man. easy opportunities layups <laughs> yeah I, I was I was 18 year old guy I mean forgive me uh, <laughs> are we gonna get a chance to get into conversations about the more mature Dominic yes Foxford absolutely absolutely that has a better perception on masculinity <laughs> than uh racking up numbers and like that that's how I thought when I was when I was 18 forgive me uh, 
so when those opportunities presented themselves, there was a specific type of person who was looking for you. (laughs) And those are not the type of people that you're necessarily looking for for a long term relationship, if that makes sense. So it's an extension of fandom, you know, in some, I guess. So having fun and having these great sex stories from being a college athlete. But, like, attracting the type of woman, like, attracting my wife, we went to the same school, but we didn't date then because she was not uh, enamored with the... The persona that I, I I was and the so I think it hurt us academically where our professors were harder mm-hmm. on us because they thought we were dummies who were just there to play football and and it definitely was difficult romantically and I think it probably had a racial com- component also in going to predominantly white school it's like well these uh, women who wouldn't necessarily be interested in you as kind of a long-term relationship type of person. They're like, well, this big kind of like Mandingo, strong black man, let's experiment with that and see what this is all about, which huh. obviously we didn't... Were you aware of that at the time or, or looking back? Um, I think I was aware of it at the time. Or I, I kind of use, I think I used it to justify some of the things that that I would do, you know, so I, I wasn't like the the best boyfriend or the best everything at the time. And I think I would use things like that, like, well, they're just after me because they just want to be close to to the football guy or they just think that I'm in great shape and I'm like this stereotypical, like oversex black male and they want to give that a try, but they don't actually want to take me seriously. So... I mean, whatever. I don't care if, like, I am with her and her friend and don't think much about it. You know, so I think I was aware of it to the extent that it gave me cover, you know? So playing on a winning college football team is sort of like being a rock star, along with the other 125 guys on the team. You're growing up together, learning how to deal with celebrity together, but none of you are making any money. A moment I'm really interested in is is that transitional moment. You know, University of Maryland was good when you were there, but there were just a very few of you who went on to the NFL after you graduated. Did you talk about that with your teammates, the reality of when you play for NCAA, you do not get paid? And just uh, very few of you are looking forward to a a massive payday. One of my best friends in life, and he's still uh, a really good friend of mine. Like, it it breaks my heart to talk about now because our friendship is kind of up and down occasionally, but we're still pretty close. Uh, I'm the godfather to his daughter. But I remember we kind of stopped talking for uh, a year or two when I went to the NFL and he didn't. And I remember very clearly when we were training together to get ready for a pro day, where which is when NFL scouts come and and watch you work out and at your school. So we're trading for the pro day. And 
I think it was evident that he was a great player, but uh, he had had injuries, and it was evident that he was going to have a much harder time making it professionally than I was. And I said something to him to the effect of, like, well, I mean, I love you. We're, I mean, as long as I make it, like, we both make it and whatever you need. And I guess maybe that was the wrong thing to say at the time. I thought it was the right thing to say. But I remember very clearly him responding to me by saying that um, it was some quote from the Bible that said uh, that uh, a rich man has about as much chance to make it to heaven as a camel passing through the eye of a needle. It felt like he, he like resented me or there was some jealousy and it definitely uh, hurt our relationship going forward. And I don't know that we've ever like been the same. Well, it's interesting that it was financial. It wasn't like you get to, you get to realize this dream. It was like, I realize you're going to get this big payday. Yeah. The guy that I was just talking about had three knee surgeries and a shoulder surgery and reconstructed his index finger. So he's going to have to have a knee replacement. He was told that in his 20s, you're going to have to have a knee replacement by the time you're 40. And no one's covering that, that health care that he needs. And no one's making up for the fact that they guided him towards a major that he wasn't interested in, but they guided him that way because they needed a easier he needed an easier major so he could be flexible with his mm-hmm. uh his football schedule like these are all things that decisions that were pushed upon a 17-year-old kid that were that would benefit the institution more than they would benefit him so it sounds like it was in college that you were i mean politicized in a certain mm-hmm. way about the the economics of sports and how players needed oh, yeah. to advocate for themselves None of us had any control or leverage in order to protect ourselves. And and then there's the whole idea that we're students before athletes. But uh, the sports, if I had an exam uh, during practice, then I went to practice. And if I got a 100% on my chemistry exam, no one is going to receive any benefit, including me. So the motivation is there there for me to do well, to get an interception on Saturday, that will benefit me. That'll benefit the athletic director, the coach, the university, the president, the alumni, the students. I take issue with people pretending that the benefits that are afforded the university and all the people involved are not a result of the sacrifices of the players. Coming up, Dominique Foxworth explains why it got hard to play football when he finally started feeling like a grown man. I've been hearing from more of you about funerals that changed your life. And a lot of your memories are about that feeling of clumsiness when a loss first hits. About not knowing how to fit it in alongside the mundane tasks of everyday life. Like the question of figuring out what to wear. Marta from Chicago sent in her memories of her boyfriend's funeral three years ago. He died suddenly when she was in her 20s from an enlarged heart he didn't know about. I wore this completely ridiculous dress. It was like, had these huge yellow poppy flowers all over it. (laughs) But it was his favorite dress that I wore, so... um, Of course, you know, I wore it to his funeral. 
Felicia Kayser in Boston had the same question when she lost her first pregnancy at eight and a half months. She didn't know how to begin mourning. They decided to have a funeral for her daughter. And she wrote, I remember struggling to pick out an outfit to wear. Having just given birth, my body was still too big to fit into my regular clothes, but wearing maternity clothes felt depressing and wrong. I chose a blue maternity dress that I was borrowing from a friend. On the next episode, finding out your father has a mysterious illness that people don't fully understand, but know is deadly. And I just remember waking up that next morning, taking a shower and having that moment in the shower of like, oh wait, this is real. This horrible thing that is going to change your life forever is actually true and is actually happening. And I remember very clearly being in the shower that next morning and being like, my dad's dying. And I don't know why or how. Whitney Joyner remembers her father and his death from AIDS in Kentucky in the early 1990s. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. 
You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death Sex Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When Dominique Foxworth was 25 years old, he'd played for the Denver Broncos for three years, but was sent to Atlanta to play for the Falcons. The year before, the Falcons had lost 12 games and only won four. Dominique needed to win to get a new contract, and the move south made him wonder if his career was going to be over. I was living in a hotel for a little while and then on an air mattress in the place I rented until my furniture got there. And so it was really uh, a lot of time to think when you're on an air mattress and you don't have a TV. And when you're at the bottom of the depth chart, do you think your career is coming to an end? It's a lot of time to think. And I think that was really a kind of pivotal time in my life and had me thinking differently about my about who I was. Then turns out I ended up having a great season and signed a a major, a really big contract in in Baltimore. Baltimore. It was a return to the town where he'd grown up. And that big contract was worth $28 million over four years. Then Dominique got injured. So you you had a shorter career than you could have had in the NFL because you tore your ACL in practice. Mm -hmm. Right. On that day, did you know that that it was going to be over? No, I didn't know it was going to be over. Um, when did you realize? I, was, I think um, when I went back the day I, I, so I recovered from the ACL and I went back to start practicing and things weren't right. That was an issue, but also things weren't right for me psychologically. I just participated as the president in the negotiations for the collective bargaining, the most recent collective bargaining agreement. And I sat across the table from the owners of the teams and negotiated over the the projected $10 billion the NFL was supposed to be making. And days later, I was on the practice field, uh, like sweating and listening to coaches yell and all that. And I just didn't, I mean, that, hmm. I, at this point in my life, I'd, I felt more comfortable at the table than I did on the field. It it didn't feel like I went from like the top of the totem pole to the bottom. We, we get paid well because the talents that we have are so rare, but you're still the labor. So in some ways it felt like you weren't being treated like a grown man. You're being yelled at by coaches after sitting at the table in a position of power. And then you go back to the field yeah. and, that's exactly what it felt like. And that's when I said uh, I should apply to Harvard Business School. And I always had business school in the back of my mind, but I realized I could kind of play the same way that I could play with the best on football. I realized I could play with the best um, intellectually and professionally. Hmm. That's interesting because, you know, you hear career ending injury and you think that that you know, it would be this very fraught moment for you. But it sounds like you had you had stored up some resentment by that point that you were you were ready for something else. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's the really big difference is guys who are able to maintain the love for the game. And I don't think I maintained that. I, mm. I And I don't know if I've joked with some of my friends and saying that you're either – really strong mentally or really weak mentally 
to be able to maintain that because you either don't see what's going on around you or have the strength to put that out of your mind. So when I was a high school player, obviously, like, do anything I could for my team and the guys, like, that's the last time where I felt like I was really on a team. Then when you get to the NFL, I had a great rookie season and I was playing well and they went and signed another player at my position for uh, like $30 million. And then I was not allowed to start. And so like my first contract was um, not a ridiculous amount of money. It's not kind of, it was great money, but it wasn't life changing. Like uh, your grandkids will have these yeah. great opportunities type of money. And that's why I wanted to come to the NFL. So when I saw him sign that deal and then him get this playing time over me, I was very angry and I wanted to get that opportunity. So my goal became less as much as I wanted to win the Super Bowl or play really well. I wanted to play well because I knew that if I could play well, I could get this extension. I could make this money and then my kids can go to private schools. And so it became more about that, getting to the next transaction than it did about like being the best player and supporting your team and sacrificing for your team in the way that it was in high school. Did you decide to retire or was it forced on you? I think I decided before it was forced on me. Uh Like I knew that I was done before they knew I was done. And then eventually they said, you know, you're done. (laughs) And I said, I know. Like, Thank you for the opportunity. Like, I'm sorry that I I felt it's crazy, too, because I felt this great amount of guilt that I wasn't able to fulfill um, my contract. I didn't feel enough guilt to, like, give them the money back. That's ridiculous. (laughs) But, But I remember thinking when I was a rookie and I was on my I was a third round pick and I was a rookie contract. I remember thinking very clearly, like, they owe me more money. Like uh, I started half the season, played in a bunch of playoff games, made big plays, and uh, played like a starter, and they're paying me like a third-round pick. And I feel like for my last contract, it was the opposite direction. And it, and I remember trying to, in the same way that I try to rationalize some of my decisions in college, I try to rationalize it like, well, the league as a whole owed me this money or something like that. But it still didn't didn't like alleviate the guilt that I felt. But again, wasn't that guilty because they're not getting a check back. <laughs> and are you when you think of your your where you are financially right now, are, are your grandkids set or do you need to make Absolutely. some more money? They're set. Oh yeah. It's great. Love it. How does that how does that affect your decision making about life when you're in your early thirties and don't need to worry about money? That's it's a weird thing. Because there's, I think we all kind of say this, uh, say like, well, if I hit the lottery, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to travel and like be on the beach all the time and just hang out. And I can, but (laughs) I don't, there's this like, uh, I did some reading recently about the, the hedonic treadmill which is what just like the what I feel like I'm on. I had like a, a many, many like existential crisis while in business school because in my mind, it's like, I want to go to business school. I want to become a billionaire. Like I, I want to take uh, however many millions I have now and turn them into hundreds of millions or or billions. And that's just mm. like how it's like why you go to Harvard Business School, right? But when I got there, they actually, I was surprised because that's not what they teach. 
they kind of teach this like more look for fulfillment. And so there was a period there when I was like, what will really fulfill me? Like, do I want to stay home with be like a stay at home dad? And I came to realize that that's not what makes me happy. <laughs> so like the one thing that I that I got or a couple things that I got from football that I realized that I want to continue to have in my life is one relevance and two mm-hmm. competition. And I remember when I like being sitting and being honest with myself, I was like, all right, well, you really liked the attention, didn't you? <laughs> and it's not something that you want to you want to say, but it's like, yeah, I, I kind of did. And I liked having the platform. But I still think that somewhere inside of me is still like, who doesn't like being the big man on campus? Yeah. And I don't want to not be that anymore. Yeah, I mean, you and, you came of age at a time when when your name would be announced, people would literally cheer. I mean. <laughs> it's it's kind of ridiculous. What, um, and I think that I found when I was having this kind of existential crisis where I was like, what do I really want out of my next job and what do I want out of the rest of my life? Uh, the year between football and business school, like I would just study all day, but I'd be around the house and I was not very happy. Like it just doesn't make me happy to not have a goal to strive towards. Tell me about your wife. She's awesome. She's uh, crazy smart. Uh, she is private schools her whole life, and both her parents are doctors, and she had a different experience than me growing up, which was very cool to to have. I think that's cool for our kids to have that perspective. But she went on to Harvard Law School, and I remember thinking, this is really great. Like, I don't want a stay-at-home wife. Like, I, it's not how I grew up. I thought that's what I wanted. And so then we had kids, and that's not who she is. She's a stay-at-home mom most of the time, and mm. and that works for us. I thought I wanted this kind of, like, power relationship where it's two people who are just climbing to the top of everything. And I think I probably thought that because— I was in an NFL and I like feared that somebody was going to try to come and take advantage of me for my money. I wanted someone who also had earning power. I think that was part of probably like subconsciously why I thought that. But that's not actually what I that's not actually the person that would fit into my life if I had like this this kind of alpha personality person around and we would clash a lot and who's going to stay home with the kids. That question is never asked with us. It's like she wants to I want her to. Do you still want to make a lot more money? Uh, I don't know, honestly. I think uh, it's become more clear to me that the money is less important. I mean, I, I think the money, I don't, I don't live a crazy life. <laughs> it's, I have, uh, norm, most of my life is pretty normal. I think the, the, the best thing about the money is having flexibility and more than that is for me at least is it kind of gives you that kind of prestige and relevance that that I say that I, I'm looking for like being able to for people people knowing that you have that money or yeah. people knowing that you have uh had success in NFL is is good and I think that's part of the reason why I want to make more money is because I think that I don't like that people think 
or I assume that people make assumptions about me about what I'm able to afford or what I'm able to do is only based on me being an athlete. Whether it's true or or uh, or false isn't important. I just like I want to get to the point where uh, I feel comfortable saying that the things that uh, I've achieved financially and the things that I can afford my family is partially because of football, but even more because of what I've done afterwards. Watching football now? Nope. No? <laughs> Do you just not watch? Nah. I have a hard time watching injuries. It's difficult for me to watch guys get knocked unconscious. The strategy and the mental part of football, I still love. It's a lot more like chess and these calculated decisions than other sports are. And I love that about football and I love that about business and I love that about chess. But the play-by-play guys don't know what they're talking about, which uh, is shocking considering there's so many like ex-athletes in there, but maybe they just simplify it for the sake of the common fan. But I can't listen to them, most of them, because... They uh, they don't know what they're talking about. And <laughs> it makes it hard for me to watch, like, no, that's wrong. And then I want to see the entire field so I can, like, really analyze the chess match and the TV copy. I can't. The angles that they have, like, the, <laughs> what I enjoy about football, I can't see. Monique Foxworth lives with his wife and two kids in Cambridge while he goes to Harvard Business School. And if you're curious, even though Dominique retired a year before his $28 million contract was up, he still got paid most of that money because the big payouts were front-loaded with bonuses. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botin, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Chris Bannon, and Jim Briggs. Thanks also this week to Stephen Dubner. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. We're on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or your other favorite podcasting apps. And you can email us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Send story ideas or let me know if Dominique changed anything about the way you see football. He says there's one thing he really misses about playing defense, beating Peyton Manning. Pre-snap, you see Peyton, like, making all these hard counts, which is just, like, faking a snap and making fake audibles. He spent a full three and a half minutes recounting to me one single play. Immediately after he looks back to me, runs over the top to cover me over the top, and they throw it deep to Reggie Wayne, and Ed's there to pick it off. So, uh... Interception! (laughs) Woo! Outsmarting Peyton... Uh, throughout the course of the game was so, so great. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.